You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me in Southampton, England is my co-host, Jonathan Havercroft. And Jonathan, we have two guests today that we've actually had on before when we first discussed the story of Team Kim, who is going to represent Korea at the Beijing Olympics. And for my money, it's the best story in curling. The last time we had them on, we talked about what Team Kim experienced during the 2018 Olympics and shortly after. And if you're unfamiliar with their story, I'll boil about a hour-long conversation into just a few sentences. But Team Kim, during the Olympics and shortly after, uh, really suffered corruption, abuse, uh, embezzlement that robbed them not only of winnings, but of the enjoyment that they should have gotten out the, that they should have gotten out of the sport of curling. And fortunately, our two guests are with us to talk about much happier times. And we're here really. I, I was talking to them before. I said we're here to talk about you know the happy part of this story. So joining us in Ontario is Melvin Lee, who I think we I think we settled on curling consultant as your title. Melvin, is that right? Yeah, we'll we'll go with curling consultant. <laughs> nice to be back, Ryan and John. It, and uh, joining us in quarantine in Korea, preparing for the Winter Olympics, is one of the coaches of Team Kim, Peter Gallant. Peter, thank you so much for coming back on the show and for getting up early in Korea to, to, to speak with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Just want to start, the we, we've actually discussed Team Kim a couple of times on this show, so we've, we've been able to take listeners from the 2018 Olympics all the way through last year's Worlds. Since then, they've been pretty busy. In fact, they were they had probably the, the biggest tournament of their lives, arguably, right after those worlds when they won the Korean championships to become Team Korea for this season, including the Olympics. Uh, Peter, can you take us through last summer and just the whirlwind for that team from worlds to going to play to represent Korea? For myself, uh, after the Worlds, I basically went back home and um, I basically had a gig with my own PEI Curling Association mm -hmm. to uh, basically as their provincial high performance coordinator. So I was thinking kind of the gig was mostly over with Team Kim. And, uh, you know, I, the Worlds was great to get back together with them, even though I was in quarantine in a bubble in Calgary. Uh, it was still meant a lot to me, myself and the team to have the team together. So I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to them, to be honest with you. I knew they were preparing for nationals. And when they won nationals, they basically phoned me the minute they get off the ice, uh, uh, insisting that I join them again for the run to the Olympics. So it put me in a bit of a hard spot because I had to make a decision about, uh, I'd already agreed to work with my own association. So, um, but from a personal standpoint, it was something I had to do. That's, you know, in spite of what happened at 2018 Olympics, I knew that team needed another shot at it and um, I wanted to be part of it. So, so yeah, it, it's been a different type of season for sure. Did you know what you were getting into? I've seen you've been basically all over the world. You've been to Kazakhstan, you've been to Switzerland, 
you've been you know with with the team in Canada and then the qualification event in the Netherlands did you did you have an idea of what your travel schedule was going to be when you got into this uh not totally i mean i i knew what we'd have to be in europe at some point in time but the netherlands wasn't named as the site for the oqe until like mm-hmm. only a few weeks prior to it seemed like maybe a month ahead so same with uh, the kazakhstan uh, pacific mm-hmm. asia championship like i I wasn't that enthused about going back to Kazakhstan. We had been there for the university championships and, you know, I'm kind of glad we were there when we were and not a month later oh, gosh. with all the things that happened there in Almaty. But uh, I know when you coach a team that, that uh, resides in Korea or any place in Southeast Asia like that, you know, there's going to be a lot of travel because you have to travel to the events. There's not much happening in those countries as Melvin's aware of that, uh, you know, you're not going to be there for many events. So, you have to be prepared to do the traveling and be away from home. So, um, you know, thankfully my wife was on board with everything that's been going on. So we've managed to get through. Well, and it's not just you that's been away from home. They have too, you know, they, they've been traveling to these places and they even spent a good deal of time in Canada in order to get good competition. Would I know that that's not something that happened last year and obviously we we didn't have nearly as much understanding about the pandemic um, back then as we did now. But you know, did did they did how much of an effort did they have to go through in order to to get games against good competition? What did they have to give up? You know, their families, especially for our skip. Uh, Annie's got a, a child and and married, and young me's married. Um, you know, they all the other girls have boyfriends, so. Um, you know, it's a it's a major commitment uh, that way because when you're coming to Canada. You're not just coming for a week or two and then going back home and then coming back after a week at home. You know, when you live in Canada, you you know you'd consider just go home for a week and then you go back out to Calgary or something. It's not as big a deal, but um, you know when they're coming, they're coming for a month or five weeks or six weeks. We spent a lot of time in Ontario and in Alberta this year. Um, because we needed to have the competition, but then we needed to have practices too. And we needed to, before an event, after an event, in between events, you know, you're on the ice trying to make sure you're getting as much out of the trip as you can before they go back home. And then sometimes when they go back home, they had to isolate for four days or seven days with their family. So uh, it's just a, a major commitment for anybody outside of Canada to have to, to come and do that, uh, you know, but you have to come where the events are. So it's just what you do when you're committed to getting to the Olympics. Um, yeah. So you said six, I, I was kind of just curious in the game, the game setup. So you said you're, did you, do you have like an ideal target you're hoping for to get games in? You said 60 games. Is, like a, interest, is that like a number you're aiming for? Or no, like how, it really, yeah. it, it really wasn't. I mean, you're trying to put together a schedule where the events are not stacked too heavily on you. You don't want to be going back to back to back to back. Ideal schedule, you play a couple of events, you get a couple of weeks off, you play another event maybe, you put a four or five week stretch together and then you take a break so the girls can go home. Um, but like I said, with this year's schedule, it was so hard putting it together. For example, even January, we, you know, we were anticipating going to the Grand Slam uh, in Alberta that was supposed to be first week in January. And then we were gonna, they were going to come a few days early in practice. We were going to stay a couple weeks after in practice and then come back to Korea and maybe do the final preparation, see their families for you know before they go to Beijing. But once that went out the window, you're totally rearranging your schedule again. And uh, 
you know, and then all of a sudden the 10-day quarantine's put in place. So, you know, by the time I see the girls on the ice again, it's going to be at least five weeks gone by since I saw them in Netherlands. So that's that's a big gap, you know, immediately before going to Beijing. So, and even in Korea, you know, there's some regulations that were preventing them from practicing every day. And it was, you know, trying to get ice time. It just, it, it's just not easy. So uh, they're just things you have to deal with. And, and, you know, some teams have had the luxury, I know, that they've been able to continue working and practicing and playing some events. But uh, for a lot of the teams, it, it's similar. You know, you just get nice time when you can. And But early on in the season, yeah, you're just, you're just trying to piece together a schedule where you're, you're getting events and you're not really concerned about the number of games. You're just trying to make sure that it's quality and, and you're able to get practices in. Is So the other thing I'm kind of wondering about them as a team is they've probably, in terms of the whole cycle, they've had a very disrupted cycle, right? First with not being able to play for a while and then the, the pandemic as soon as they're, they're getting back into the swing of things. Uh, and like this is the first cycle with the five rock free guard zone. So and I, th- I assume that for them, like for most teams, you, you really need to get game experience to kind of try out what new tactics work with the new new rules. Has that been a challenge also in terms of adjusting to the five rock? There's been a lot of tinkering, I would say, with the strategy and, and some teams are doing it differently. So you have to be aware of their styles and some of the tactics that they like to use. So you know how to kind of counter counter their their play so i would agree yes the five rock rule is something that we spend a lot of time on as far as there's so many more things that can happen so certain teams like to do certain things they like to play the tick shot more often not just last couple ends when they're leading they they played early in the game so you know rock placement becomes more important than it used to be you know as far as placement of guards whether you want them on the center line or off the center line and all those things so yeah, it certainly is a big part of the game now. So you have to be prepared when you're practicing to make sure that you're kind of covering all the bases. And, um, you know, as disruptive as the season has been, um, each time we are on the ice, we are, uh, I think it's a part of every practice is is, uh, is discussing rock placement and how five rock rule affects play. Is, so my other question is just about like getting to Beijing. So, I, I, you know, I'm just following all the, the curling teams on social media, and it's clear that everyone's quarantining. You know, Johnny Moe and uh, Rachel Holman are taking a bunch of funny pics of snowshoeing up in Canmore or whatever. Uh, but are, are I mean, you're and you're in a quarantine hotel right now as we're talking. But what what do the teams have to do quarantine wise, and then how does that affect their preparation too? Well, I I think that uh, well for the girls they're still able to practice here. They're at the national training center. That's where I'm going uh, Tuesday morning when I get out of here. I'll head there. It's basically considered a safe environment. There's lots of testing and and uh, it's, there's not too many people there. You know, there's just the athletes basically of curling and some other sports. But um, I think most teams like uh, my son with Brett with Gushu they're they're out in uh, BC and. They've created a safe environment there where they've rented a house and it's just the eight of them there. And they've got a curling club they go to where they basically have exclusive. Uh, they're the only ones there when they're practicing. So there's no chance basically of mingling with somebody that might possibly have COVID. So, I mean, it's the biggest fear, I think, for all the curlers is that you contract COVID now because if you get it, you're not going. It's just plain and simple. So, you know, and you work four years to kind of get here or get back here to the Olympics. So. 
it's uh i think avoiding covid right now seems to be more important than getting last practices in <laughs> kind of you're not ready now you're not going to be as far as tactics and strategy and you just really want to be able to throw some rocks and stay sharp with your timing and uh keep your brain in the game sort of thing but uh the most important thing is getting there safely and healthy do you think that dealing with what this team had to go through at the beginning part of this quad with everything, everything with their curling federation, do you think that that's kind of made them more resilient facing what they've had to face the last two years with the pandemic? We've had, we've had discussions around that and and what the team's gone through and how it all went down. And, and basically after that, we're just trying not to look in the rearview mirror. You know, you're trying to just kind of look ahead and, and forget about that stuff. But there's no question that that would would have created a little bit of, of toughness in them. Like to do what they did as far as making everything public took a lot of courage and, and effort. And no matter what they face now, it's not going to be as bad as that. So I think, you know, you just through all the pandemic, I think, as long as you stay looking ahead and focused on what's going on and uh, realize that, you know, things are a lot better than they were and uh, and put a positive spin on everything. I think that, you know, they've proven that they can handle adversity and, and come out the other side. So, uh, you know, they're just so impressive that way as far as, as, uh, as being able to look ahead and, and, um, kind of keep the eyes on the on on where they want to go and what what they want to do and, and part of that adversity was taking the long way to get to the olympics they did have to go to <laughs> what was really the very a, longest way <laughs> a a stacked women's field at the olympic qualification event and they were able to come out as as the last team to get in can you take us through that you you know the whole situation we had we had it in our own hands we win one of those games with fujisawa even in the LSD, if we put our last one on the button in the last game, we would have the best LSD, but we didn't do that. Oh, you know, man. we put it in the eight foot. So we did put ourselves up against the wall playing a, a Latvia team who had a skip who uh, may not have been the most consistent player, but she just had this ability, a big shot maker. She only like 19, but just a very good player. And she made like four or five double takeouts in that last game against us. But but uh, our, our skip was phenomenal that game, just made everything she looked at, and the team played well, so we were able to get control, basically get the lead early. But, you know, it, it was a, a pressure-packed situation when you work so hard. You don't want to be missing out on that chance to, to get to Beijing by, uh, by by losing that last game. So I was proud of them, proud of the way they came out. They, were, they seemed calm and collected more calmer than I was probably in that last game, but... Uh, that's the thing with a lot of these teams they have you know they may not have the depth like a latvia or even a team like turkey who beat scotland japan and korea at that oke yeah. i mean their skip can rifle it she she can throw the rock and uh i couldn't believe they lost to the other teams and it's just that inconsistency but those are scary teams to play against because you know they're capable of having that game where they don't miss anything melvin Take us. I know you watched that game live. I'm sure you got up in the middle of the night to watch that one. Take us through your emotions when, when that last rock, when after that last rock, where they clinched their spot in their trip back to the Olympics. Well, I, um, just because of the time difference, it was actually. I think Peter, if, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys played in the morning in Netherlands, right? 
So for, for me, that meant if I wanted to watch the full game, I'd have to wake up something like 3 a.m. or something. Like so <laughs> I wasn't as much of a fan as I was. I know, you know, like basketball, curling curling matches are usually decided in the last few ends. <laughs> so I decided to catch it midway through. Um, uh, like Peter said, I was kind of confident. I, I think I joined the broadcast when it was about third or fourth end and Korea was strong. And then there was a bit of a wobble, right? At the same time, like uh, Latvia played really well through ends six, seven, five, six, seven. <laughs> I don't normally bite my nails, but I was like, oh man, it's getting a bit too tight. Um, but yeah, like uh, I think we, Korea was up two with Hammer uh, going into the 10th end. So it was just, a, you know, if as long as Korea doesn't make any mistakes, we're in. And yeah, it was just going through personally uh, with Peter and also with the team, all the stuff they'd been, they'd been through um, since the 2018 Olympics. Uh, yeah, there were tears of joy. And unfortunately, I was yelling and screaming and waking up my family, which was still asleep. <laughs> but um, yeah, just very, very elated and very happy. Actually relieved more than anything else because... I think I shared with you uh, Unjung's what she wanted to say on the a podcast through us was her dream was just to enjoy this this next Beijing Olympics in a way that they weren't able to in 2018 and hopefully reach their ultimate goal of winning an Olympic gold medal for Korea. Peter, they, you know, we we, we talked about them taking the the long way to get to the Olympics, and it doesn't exactly get easier. Your first two games, I'm sure you're aware, you open up with Canada with Jennifer Jones, and then the second game is Great Britain in Eve Muirhead. I know that, you know, it, it seemed like in 2018, you know, they started out hot, and then they just allowed that to just roll through the tournament on their way to the gold medal game. How important is it for them to kind of get off to that same start um, against two very tough opponents? But I will add to opponents that you've played on tour and beaten on tour coming into coming into this event. Like it's really, really an unbelievably tough field. A lot of experience um, and just just solid teams. Like the old saying goes, if you're looking for the easy game you're, and you can't find it, you're probably it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even looked at the schedule actually beyond yeah. the first game, to be honest with you. I just know we're playing my, my future daughter-in-law first game. <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, I, I, I got to mention this, guys. I'm sure you know about this. Um, the Olympic trials were a particularly celebratory one for the Gallant family, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it um, was. Brett's, Brett's, Brett's going. Um Jocelyn Peterman, like Peter just mentioned, future daughter-in-law is going. And with Peter qualifying with Korea in the Netherlands, like he completed the trifecta, right? So that's right. Uh, I know all three of these people and just, just so, 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 like you can meet nicer people in curling. And uh, I wish everybody could win. That's not going to be the case, but, <laughs> you know. Peter, you're lucky. You're probably going to be like the only family at these games with them not, with them not allowing, not allowing yeah. the public in, you're probably going to be the only family member there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It could be the case. It's uh, you know, it was quite a thrill when, um, you know, I remember four years ago, 
how disappointed I was when Team Gushu didn't uh, mm-hmm. didn't make it through. You know, just wishing that you know Brett was going to be there at the Olympics as well. But so this time around, it was uh, the Canadians that they qualified before us. So uh, it's kind of the other way around. Where we're, yeah. so, geez, we we better we better win here. <laughs> It'll be the last chance for something like this. So uh, you know, it was hard watching both Brett and Jocelyn. Uh, pretty excited for both of them to to win. Is it going to be difficult uh, coaching against your your future daughter daughter in law? Or uh, I'm kind of happy it's the first game. You know, I'm I'm kind of hoping we see them again in the playoffs. But uh, you know, I'm kind of hoping it's I'm glad it's the first game. Get it out of the way and and just move on. Obviously, I want her to play well and I want their team to do well. But you know, my job's to coach this team too and and uh, to have success with this team. It's easy for Brett. There's nobody to cheer against you know i'm going to be cheering for him all the way regardless so uh i'm just hoping i'm able to watch some of their games i'm not sure we, we probably won't be able to yeah but i don't know what the rules will be as far as curlers watching other curlers or you know women's teams watching men's teams i'm not sure what the rules will be in china well there's been obviously a lot of a, a lot of changes for this team there's going to be some people will have not seen this team since the last olympics can you Take us through like on the ice, you know, how is how has this team evolved, you know, strategy wise or in terms of their play on the ice, Peter, like what's the difference between what people might've seen four years ago versus now? What differences will they notice? Uh, some of them, they won't really notice that I, you know, the level of maturity, um, just four more years of experience. I mean, that's what they were lacking, you know, pre 2018 Olympics was just that game experience, uh, consistent shot calling. I mean, the execution level is high and it's always been high, but we're just getting, uh, our skip's getting a little better at calling the game. The chemistry's not an issue. The girls have been together so long that that's, that's a non-issue. We, you know, we've rearranged the front end a little bit in that, um, you know, we've inserted Chohi in the second and um, Young Mi's now our fifth. So, and Sonny's moved back to lead. So that's different from the previous Olympics. But Chohi's such a good rock thrower that, that, you know, she needed to be in there. But it's just a different look. But overall, I, I think that the team remains mostly the same. Without that burden on their back of the pressures that they faced four years ago, it's just, it's just going to be interesting to see how they, how they get along in Beijing. I mean, it's not the pressure cooker that it was in Korea where, you know, everybody's watching, your family's there. You know, the way they responded under that kind of pressure situation just, you know, it, it bodes well because there's no way this can be as much pressure, you know. So I have, I have to actually, I have to disagree with Peter. I, I, I rarely do, right? <laughs> but I do have to disagree with Peter because I think he's left one key element here in terms of the difference. And this is typical Peter Gallant style, right? His humility does, like, you know, he, he's not purposely trying to be humble. This is who he is. I think that's going to be key. The fact that you are going to have a world-class coach that is going to be unhindered and is going to have full access to the team and is going to, you know, build this relationship, right, with the team, right, for the Olympic tournament from, from game one until however long they play during the tournament, unhindered, with full access. And frankly, with, uh, I know uh, the Korean coach very well, Myung-Sup Lim, Miles Lim, he defers to, to Peter as, you know, they all call Peter their curling father, Abuji, Appa, right? 
so the, like the team fully knows and the Korea, I can, I, I've, I've seen the Korea Curling Federation media day too. The Federation fully knows who is, you know, going to be doing the main shot calling and, and doing the coaching. And it's, it's going to be this man, right? So, um, uh, on behalf of Korea, and I can probably confidently say on behalf of the team, Kim Curlers, uh, this is the huge, biggest X factor that we're going to have this time around that wasn't fully available to Korea uh, at the 2018 Olympics. And um, that raises my confidence level even more. What, what has been the difference between four years ago when you were preparing for Pyeongchang and four years later now preparing for Beijing, how was your, how was your interaction with the, the federation and your, your access to your team? How does that compare from four years from four years ago to now? Has there been a difference? Well, from a, from a team perspective, as, as Melvin said, um, you know, Miles, their Korean coach, he's, he and I get along so well and, uh, and, just the, the, be free to say anything we want. These questions me, which is great. I want them to, and that's that's the biggest difference for me because you know even in Pyeongchang at the Olympics there, the you know I, the Korean coach wouldn't even let me talk to the girls prior to the final game. You know she wouldn't let me have access to them, and uh, and it was just so strange. You know she just kind of cut me off from the team, I guess, in order to be seen as as the one that was coaching the team. So I don't know what it was. It was weird. So that freedom now just to be able to be, as Melvin said, unhindered, be able to, to say what I want to say when I want to say it is, is, is really important as a coach. From the Federation point of view, even back then, there wasn't much hindrance from them. And and today it's it's really the same. I don't really notice any difference for me from the, from the Korean Curling Federation. Um, They've been pretty good. They've they've got some good young guys there that have been very helpful. I haven't met the president yet. I hope to meet him maybe in you know next week or two. But nothing's really changed as far as I can see that way from my perspective. Melvin, you might be able to answer this better. But in addition to all the changes, all the turnover that's happened at the Korean Curling Federation from four years ago, uh, Team Kim also changed which uh, province they're representing. Um, how is that? Do you know how that's kind of affected their ability to get practice ice or the 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 support in the background that they've had from from a provincial standpoint? It was actually, to be honest with you, um, probably the last piece in the puzzle for, I'll say it a different way. It was the last link in the chain that needed to be broken, if you will, right? Mm. Um, without going into too much detail, there was still a lot of nepotism with their old uh, feder- uh, organization that was employing them, the Kyungbuk uh, Sports Council. Um, some of KD Kim's family members, friends were still there causing problems for them, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the uh, town, municipality, um, which now uh, they're employed by uh, Gangneung, the city of Gangneung, which hosted the uh, Olympic curling tournament uh, during the Pyeongchang Olympics. And their home curling facility now is the exact same Olympic curling arena where they won the silver medal, right? Um, It's funny, they actually hosted, they were on a variety show once and uh, 
Hall of Ga- uh, Hall of Fame golfers Harry Pak and some of these other retired pro sports Korean fe- uh, mm-hmm. lady athletes, they went to try out curling, and so Annie Unjung Kim got them to play on the exact sheet where they uh, had the semifinal against Japan, right? And even Seri Park was like, oh, wow. <laughs> In awe. So um, the reception from, from Gangneung, uh, from the mayor right on down to all of the uh, employees of the city and uh, the management staff, it, it's, it's been a dream come true. Yeah, they've been treated like royalty basically since they made the move. So it's, uh, you know, again, totally different uh, world for them. Uh, I know that that Melvin wants to Melvin wants to talk to us here in a little bit about governance. He wants to he he wants to talk about you know how how the Olympics has has changed curling governance. And I wanted to get kind of your perspective and what changes have you seen in national curling organizations? Period since curling got into the Olympics in 98? Well, I think from a Canadian perspective, just that overall focus on, on the high performance curling. And I think, um, I don't know whether that was a direct correlation to the decline of, of the number of curlers and the number of curling clubs that have closed in the last two decades. But, you know, it's certainly been amazing how many clubs have closed in in formerly curling hotbeds you know like out in the west you know in alberta and how many teams they used to have in alberta for their northerns and then their southerns and you know now they don't even split them they just it's just like an open provincial event it's just uh it's not just the eastern provinces of canada that have suffered and have had declining numbers uh, but so i don't know i i really don't have an answer as far as as how that's affected affected um, curling overall, uh, that high performance, uh, you know, the whole Olympic thing. Um, It certainly made the teams that are competing and are at that level just amazing teams and athletes. Just the the performance level is just so high now. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the 90s when I was playing in Briars, if you could curl 80, 82% for the week at third, you're going to be close to the top, might get an all-star. Now, if you're 82, you're, you're last, like, you know, <laughs> if you can't make 90% of your shots, then, you know, you're going to have a long week. So it's just amazing, like the, how good these players are now and the sweeping and the fitness levels. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's, you know, the way curling has gone, as far as the focus on winning gold medals at the Olympics, it's a good thing, but you know, at the grassroots level, you just question whether it's helped at all. And, in Korea, it's just it's 100% about winning, you know, medals at the Olympics. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the 2018 silver medal hasn't really uh, done a whole lot, of, I think, to develop any kind of grassroots curling. I think there's been another curling club or two open up in the country, and Melvin can speak more to that. But overall, I haven't seen any inkling of uh, interest from Korean Curling Federation in hiring somebody that could come in and, and develop curling, um, develop high school curlers into more elite curlers, develop those eighth, seventh, sixth place teams in the men's and women's game to be better so that the competition is higher in the country instead of just focusing on the top one or two or three teams, which is where it is now. I have 
talked about certain things that I would want to do if uh, my uh, tenure with the Korea Curling Federation was extended. I don't know if you knew that, that I was actually from a former, former vice president of the Korea Curling Federation uh, about six months. I had a six-month term with the Korea Curling Federation as an advisor. I had zero one, zero cents inserted into <laughs> my bank account for those efforts. I think I'm really concerned as a fan of the sport that federations everywhere. Uh, now, I don't know, Ryan, maybe we can get into a conversation as to, I'm not too sure what USA curling is doing, but I know uh, full well with the Korea Curling Federation and somewhat in depth regarding Curling Canada. Um, Peter's just re, uh, just reinforced it, right? There seems to be this focus, and I could speak to Canada. Like I think our national pride, curling pride, was very hurt in Pyeongchang when, although we won the mixed doubles gold medal, the fact that unprecedentedly we didn't win even a single medal of any color in the men's and women's events, right? And so, so acutely, there seemed to be this increased focus, even on high-performance curling uh, curlers and, uh, you know, high-performance curling athletes. Um, even in 2018, you could argue that uh, support and uh, saving, uh, particularly curling clubs in rural Canada, was going by the wayside. I think that that is a huge problem uh, that is serving to serve the detriment to be honest with you, of curling in Canada. The fact that I believe Curling Canada has pretty much ignored saving saving curling clubs and developing curling clubs and developing gra- grassroots curling in this country, right? Is most of that because they've just kind of left it to the provincial federations? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure, but it, I, I'm seeing curling clubs, like what's happening, actually just visibly seeing What's happening with them is like what's happening with churches, right? You go to most curling clubs in Canada, not just rural, but urban now as well, and you just see a bunch of, I mean, pardon me for saying this, old white people, right, that are making up the membership, right? Um, Having said that, uh, my home curling club in Ottawa, City View Curling Club, honestly, is probably one of the most ethnically diverse and probably one of the youngest uh, curling club memberships that I've ever been a part of. Now, when I say ethnically diverse, we're talking 5%. 5% of the membership is non-white, right? And honestly, that is probably the most ethnically diverse club I've been a part of. So as a BIPOC Canadian, uh, I definitely would like to see curling clubs and um, I don't know if it's on the national curling organization in terms of Curling Canada or provincial organizations actually intentionally reaching out to ethnic communities, right? Uh, As I'm not too sure who was responsible for this, but following uh, Team Kim's success at the Pyeongchang Olympics, um, I can't remember the name of the curling club in Toronto. It's one of the famous ones, but they actually reached out to the Korean uh, Community Association in Toronto 
and they had like a, a learn to curl event that was translated in Korean. You had all, all these bunch of, bunch of Koreans actually trying curling for the very first time because they were interested from what Team Kim had done during the 2018 Olympics. This type of thing, to be intentional and to also be sensitive to the fact that many members of that ethnic community might not speak English, right? And so you might have to have certain translators and instructors speaking in that community's language, right? Um, I saw something, I think it was last week, from an American curler. I can't remember exactly who it was, who said the exact same thing, talking about the lack of ethnic diversity when she's gone to international curling tournaments, right, where it's been mostly white. And so she, she, she'd love to see this, this international sport become more ethnically diverse. And so if, if you talk about just at the grassroots level, trying to salvage curling clubs in Canada, I think this is definitely one strategy that um, both Curling Canada and even, even at the curling club level, um, organizations should be looking at to not just increase membership, but to, I would even argue, try to save the sport. But I agree with Melvin, the whole diversity thing. I was thinking of that while you're speaking on PEI last winter when I was doing all these camps. There were very, very, I can't even think of any Asian kids. And there's been a major influx of Asian um, you know, people settling in the Prince Edward Island. And, and you know, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of kids there that haven't been maybe introduced to the game or, or maybe their parents have seen it or seen Team Kim or, or, or Team Japan, you know, Fujisawa, that, you know, two medal winners in the last Olympics. There's, I think there's a huge untapped potential there to get more youngsters into the game. And just by sheer numbers, you're going to retain more through, you know, those years where you typically would lose them. Going back to what you said earlier about, growing representation in curling. We are fortunate here in the States that we have people working very hard um, to achieve that. We have Monica Walker and her group who are trying to look at a more, more global level. And then we have Deb Martin and Dean Gimmel, who are curlers here in the United States who are heading up uh, what's called the Icebreakers program, where they're trying to, they're, they're starting off small, obviously, and they kind of have to just because of the pandemic without a big rollout. But starting in a few communities and doing outreach to try and improve diversity in curling. And I think that, you know, eventually, hopefully in a post-pandemic world, we, we have that rolled out to every curling club here in the United States, but they've, they're starting small um, and they're, they're kind of having to start slow, especially with a lot of clubs having to, to close. But here in the States, I know that they are working toward that. And I'm, I, I think Curling Canada has the same thing, but again, I think that the, with the with the provincial associations, I think so much that is so much that's done at the grass level. It sounds like is more left up to the provincial associations to apply any resources that Curling Canada has. We initially had a chat chat thing. You're kind of quite up in arms about the the mixed doubles, also, right? So, mm -hmm. um, what? What was your thoughts about the mixed doubles uh, selection for Team Canada? Well, I mean, like, 
it's not just with curling. I'm a, I'm a sports fan, but just in life, I, I just I get very irritated and annoyed with injustice. Hmm. Right. And so, okay. Now, I, I don't know if Peter wants to chime in on this, but for me, you have Curling Canada has implemented a ranking system, right? To to rank mixed doubles, mixed doubles teams. Um, based on the system that they've implemented, I thought it would, you know, make sense that they would use that system to select, you know, the top ranked team in this country, right? Now, I've had discussions, including with Peter, as to how teams um, get points for for that ranking system. And, you know, it, it's possible that that ranking system itself is flawed. The, the, the selection process for me, uh, as a layperson, was not transparent. I still don't, I, I still don't know what, like, what, what was the method and the process for selecting John Morris and uh, Rachel Holman. So now, I'm a, I am a fan of American college football, so I can explain um, that selection process for you. <laughs> you. You start with who you want to pick and then you work backwards. <laughs> and you justify it. Yeah. And then you, you justify. Know, yeah, I mean, and then you and then you restart each year with I okay. Think, here are the here are the four teams that we won in the playoff this year. It's because they had the toughest strength of schedule. This year, the four teams we won. Okay, this year it's because these were conference champions. <laughs> you you joke about that. You joke about that. I'm not going to actually say who said this, but multiple people that I've asked. Peter's not one of these people. Just to let him know, uh, have said. Exactly that. I mean, it's what I, I will say. It. I, I had a pretty good idea of of who the team was going to be once the trials were canceled. I had a pretty good feeling that it was going to be Holman and Morris. I think the uh, the whole idea of the of the point system. I don't think it was ever meant to determine who was going to go to a, a major event. Using I agree with that point system. It's more of a seeding. It's more for seeding. And Brett and Jocelyn were number one in that list, yeah. and they only played one mixed doubles event this year, and they lost to John Morris and Rachel Holman. So the thing is, like the each player has points also from their four person teams that mm-hmm. they carry into that. Like each person basically carries points. So it's not really a, a truly reflective system of of how the mixed doubles teams effectively are ranked and i think i'm not defending curling canada but at the end of the day you know i think nancy martin and tyrell griffith would have been great representatives for canada and they were basically next on the list but if curling canada is trying to decide who they feel has the best chance of winning a medal and they're going with experience and they're going with john and rachel then i guess it's their prerogative to do that but uh that the whole ctrs Points for mixed doubles is is not really a very good indicator of where teams actually should fall into place. Like, especially this season where there weren't that many events even played. Yeah, I, I think it's something that was meant to qualify teams for a trials rather than to pick this is the this is the best mixed doubles team in Canada. I'd agree with you, Melvin, in the sense it would probably be fairest to pick the highest ranked team. Um, through that process, but like with Ryan, as soon as it was canceled, I just went and looked at the list, and I was like, 
if I'm if, if it's, it's my job is on the line and your job is on the line if you're the head of curling Canada and we we medal or not, it's a lot less risky to send Rachel Holman and John Morris than than Nancy Martin and Tyrell Griffin, right? Because they haven't they don't have the international experience. If they underperform, you're probably getting fired. Whereas if you send Holman and Morris, you just shrug your shoulders and said, I sent Holman and Morris, two of the best curlers of the last generation. It wasn't, you know. Yeah. That's I think that's they're both understandable, but I agree in a certain sense it's it's not fair. But I mean we're seeing this everywhere. Every time an event's canceled, the the outcomes are not great, right? Like curling Ontario <laughs> had a hard time picking the team for the Scotties and I think they would have got flack either way, right? Yeah, the Scotty situation and even some people are even talking about the Briar situation where you have like, you know, these ultra these extra wild card teams added on and it's like, well, what are we doing here? Like what is this? Right. So um the 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 thing is this so just just to close from from my beef about I'm not going to die on my sword and say, oh, the ranking system should have been followed and da 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 But it's a matter of the transparency, right, of the actual selection. But even before that, had Curling Canada scheduled the mixed doubles tournament earlier, this wouldn't be an issue. We wouldn't be talking about this because there would have been a tournament to actually determine and played out who would have been the, the mixed doubles representative for Canada, right? So... I don't know, just for me, there's, there's a lot of, just with my international consulting work, a lot of fundamental things uh, that I think national federations need to address and problems uh, that jeopardize the sport uh, as a whole, right? Like, like Peter said, this, this, this focus and this concentration on only the elite athletes uh, while not really looking at how to to develop, I would even argue in Canada maintain the grassroots of curling. Um, some at some time in the near future, it's going to bite you in the ass, right? Because you're not going to have those junior curlers, youth curlers, come up through the system. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I I had a great time last year. I did 73 clinics through the winter in my province with uh, every kid was under 20 and uh, just had a blast seeing seeing them develop through the year and seeing their fundamental skills improving. And with the whole idea being improve your skills, make a few more shots, like the game more, continue to play. And, you know, hopefully retain them through high school mm-hmm. and into university. You know, one of the good programs that Canadian Curling Association, I think, has gotten back in is the universities. A competition. There is a national university. They've tried to bring more programs in, like under twenty-three national competition or something, something like that. Twenty-four, twenty-three, to try to keep. Uh, like generally, we're losing the kids when they go to university. Mm. So if you can keep them curling and have something to play for, a national competition involving university. I mean, my son Christopher, my youngest boy, went to World University Games in Spain just basically through that, you know, it was just fantastic experience for him, you know, to be able to get an international competition like that, just from winning a university event in Manitoba. So, you know, looking at those different age groups and trying to create national events that, because, you know, once, once a kid gets the bug and gets to a national event and gets to play against other provinces, I mean, you just want to get back as a curler. 
And I'm not saying that's the total answer, but that is a good thing, I think, is, is you know, there's an under-18 national championship now. Not just the juniors like we played in, which was, you know, it's just one competition. Then you're into the men's. You don't have a chance. You're, you, a lot of people quit curling, you know. So I think there's some good things being done that way as far as looking at age groups. and, and uh, Yeah, I was – that just reminds me of something. Sorry, this reminds me of something that um, my club – when I was a junior, my club president then – so this is going way back. But he insisted a really big change happened when they turned – the junior championship into a junior championship rather than a school's championship. And he's, he'd say back in the seventies, it was you, each high school would enter and he'd get, he'd get eight high schools just around the curling club. And that would be like 50, 60 guys out just learning to curl. And they, the, the standard wouldn't be that great, but you just get a lot of people from the local high schools. Right. And if you're getting people from public schools, they're going to be diverse. Right. Well, that's Whereas, how I started. I started, it was called school boys. Yeah. You know, and if you're, you had to be in high, you know, maximum you could be is grade 12 at that time. And uh, um, that's how I started curling. It was part of our phys ed program in grade eight. I just started playing, loved the game and joined the curling club and started going every afternoon after school. So, but schoolboy curling was big. It, it really was. I mean, there were, it wasn't just your provincials you played in to go to nationals. There were different competitions all through the year for the schools, you know, and uh yeah, I agree. Once once it kind of get out of the schools, it, it, you just lost a lot of that ability to get people introduced to the game. You know, if it's part of your phys ed program, you got no choice. You're, you you got to go to the rank and learn about curling. And you're always going to get a, a percentage of those people that just take a really real liking to it that otherwise may not have even thought to try it. You know, I thought it was uh, basically only the wealthy people curled, you know. This is like this stuffy club where this, these, you know, guys sat around, smoked cigars and, and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So once I get in the doors and realize that, you know, this is a lot of fun, it, it's just great. I just, for me, like in terms of how, just thinking about how I got first into curling and also involved with uh, social events, like work events, even where, you got a whole bunch of non-curlers on your work team that they've never done curling before, right? And, and you take them out uh, for this just fun learn-to-curl experience. I've yet to meet a single person to say that that was all that I didn't like that. Like, every everybody seems to be really interested, at least. If mm-hmm. they're not going to join a club, it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize it was that much fun and it's just so cool, and right? So for me... I, I, I think two practical ways that we can grow curling, even within Canada. And I, I, would, I had mentioned to this to the Koreans as well, right? Number one, uh, like any other sport, I think curling needs money to continue on, right? So to get corporate sponsors on board, just to let you, you guys know, I've been talking about this with Peter, uh, John and Ryan. I've been talking at the high level to get a Grand Slam level event uh, scheduled in Korea. Uh, the general manager of the Grand Slam of, of curling, Christy Petrushak, we were talking about adding an actual Korean event into their, I think they're, they have six events on their tour right now. Yeah. To actually have a Korean stop, right? But to do that, you need corporate sponsorship. So to actually get like kind of you a curling bonspiel as you would like a charity golf tournament to get corporate 
you know, participants in, right? Do the event to raise money for a charity. But the big thing is to actually get big, big money corporations and their executives curling on the ice, right? To see, to, so for them to actually themselves experience, experience curling. Um, and then the second piece of it um, is to actually significantly increase the purses, the prize purses of the tournaments, right? Now, I don't know if we've reached a bit of a plateau in Canada for that, just because of the corporate environment here in this country. But thinking about countries like the United States, and for me, East Asia, right, where you, you may have companies like Samsung or Hyundai, you know, tripling or making five times the purse, right, for these cash, uh, turn, cash bond spiels, right? Speaking with m- multiple elite curlers, they'll hop on a plane to Korea in a heartbeat, knowing that the purse will be $200,000, $300,000 for that event, right? So I think that there are practical ways to actually infuse more money into curling. It's just trying to find that marketing, you know, uh, solve that marketing riddle as to how to do that. Yeah, I don't think, I think actually prize money's gone down. <laughs> I'm not, maybe, maybe Peter can confirm that. But I mean, because like I, I was playing competitively in Montreal like in the late 90s and just like a local cash peel, the, the first place prize would be 2,000 bucks, right? And like, you know, the, the big ones maybe be five or 10. But aside from the slams, like I'll see like, you know, the next next tier down. Like there's something like a Laura Walker one and it was like, she's got the prize check and it was like 2,100 bucks. And I was like, <laughs> it's like, it probably didn't even cover her costs for the weekend, right? Yeah, we were playing for a $10,000 first prize back in the 90s. I mean, I remember that McCain Super Spiel used to be held TSN um, sponsored it. And, uh, you know, it was like ten or $12,000 for his prize. And, um, yeah, you're not seeing any of those except for Grand Slams, like especially in Atlantic Canada. Oh, my God. It's just you wouldn't even dream of traveling outside Atlantic Canada now. It just costs too much money. Some of the teams would go to a, a spiel in Quebec maybe. Some of the New Brunswick teams might drive up there. But, uh, Man, if you know, like you said, even in the West, like where you can drive to events and not have to pay the cost of airfare, you know, if you don't, if you don't win, you're losing money. Yeah, you know, second place prize won't no. cover your hotels and your food and that stuff. So uh, it, you know, it requires, like you know, Melvin said, a, a corporate. You know, you you need to have the sponsorships, and the big teams have that because they're on TV a lot. Team Gushu, Jennifer Jones, Cooey. Like they're able to get the, the money to allow them to travel to events and play in events because it, it costs so much money. But they're on TV a lot. Sponsors are getting good, you know, getting recognized. But for for most of the teams, they're not getting that. So the sponsor's saying, what am I getting out of this? You know, well, you know, we, you might get your picture somewhere. <laughs> you know, you're probably not going to be on TV a whole lot. So why would a sponsor support you? You know, it's just from their point of view, it's just a donation, basically. They're not going to get anything out of it. So, you know, that's always been hard. It's always hard for us as a, a middle-of-the-road team back in the 90s when I played that it was always hard to get any kind of sponsorship at all, you know. Tell them you might get your name in the paper or something like that you know, as a sponsor. But 
you just basically looking for support from your friends that had businesses who were willing to support the team. So it, it, that's always been a challenge. And so along with that then comes that the major sponsors that are generally supporting those bond spills, same thing. You know, there's no TV. Why do we want to spend $25,000 supporting this curling bond spill? We're not really getting much out of it. So I think that's where the charities have to be involved and you have to really get the community on board, make it a charitable event somehow. And then then the sponsor is something that makes them look good. They're supporting this event that's helping a charity. And, you know, like the PGA Tour does, you know, they all this money's there, but every event, there's a charity in that city that's really benefiting from it. So everybody comes out a winner and the guys are playing for this scads of money, you know, so... Uh, Know, curling could probably learn a little bit from that. That's a good point. Me and me and Peter are both very avid golfers. Just so <laughs> we can we can talk about golf analogies all day. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive, and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.